Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Five former Pennsylvania governors, along with current Governor Tom Wolf, are calling for changes in how statewide appellate court judges are selected. Currently, voters select, or I should say, elect the judges, and the governors would like to see a merit selection process to decide who sits on the state courts. This is not a new proposal, but so far it has not gotten the traction in the past. So we want to see what is the difference today. Joining us in the program right now is Republican State Representative Brian Cutler of Lancaster County, and will be joined by Lynn Marks with who is the executive director of Pennsylvanians for Modern Courts in just a moment. Representative Cutler, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on this morning. All right. So you are not one of those governors yet uh, who who has uh, called for uh, changing how we select judges here in Pennsylvania, but uh, you're introducing legislation that would do that. Uh, What would your legislation do? Well, in the simplest form, it would move the selection process for statewide court uh, positions, so your Supreme Court and your appellate courts, to a merit-based selection. We would have an election committee. They would then make a recommendation to the governor, and then he would nominate someone for confirmation by the Senate. Uh, And it would be more based on their judicial temperament, abilities, and skills, as opposed to the electoral process, which historically has been tilted towards those who have good name ID, fundraising, or high voter turnout. Well, let's talk about what's wrong with our current system. You touched on a few of the issues, but what do you see with what's wrong with what we're doing now? Well, I think the, the biggest concern is that particularly in the selection of judges, you want to make sure that the individual that is being picked is above reproach, absolutely fair as well as appropriate for the position that they're seeking. And when you look at the electoral process and the way that it's played out over the last several decades, unfortunately, it typically is driven more by voter turnout, those who can raise money, those who have a strong geographical base, say they're from Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, uh, or you know have very high name ID. And none of those factors contribute to being a good or a bad judge. And when you look at that, I think that particularly given the recent scandals uh, that we've had uh, in the Supreme Court, I, I think it's time we take a good hard look at the process. But most importantly, since this is a constitutional amendment, ultimately the people will have the right to decide on what that process is and whether or not they would like to proceed with this approval. As you mentioned, it would take a constitutional amendment, which would mean it would have to go through the legislature twice and then be on the ballot and be approved by uh, by voters. Uh, so that is a difficult, that's a pretty high hurdle to have to get over. We haven't had a constitutional amendment in some time here in Pennsylvania. That's correct. Um, but I, I think that that process is structured in such a way as to ensure that it is deliberate uh, and that it is it moves through the process there's plenty of time for deliberation on the merits of the underlying change in this particular case uh, i i personally believe this is an area where we as citizens and we as voters should have the right to change how we select our government in this case the judicial members uh, for statewide and this is really a hybrid approach because it only deals with those individuals who are uh, elected statewide so one of the concerns I heard was, well, you know, I, I know my local judges. Uh, I like to vote on them. And my goal was to 
change the process at the statewide level because that's one that relies more often than not on the party structure as opposed to personal interactions with the voters. So I think that it's it's a good opportunity to try and change that process, see if the voters are interested in it, and give them that opportunity to be part of the discussion. So if this was approved by both the Senate and the House right now, uh, what is the uh, soonest that, uh, that voters could, uh, could be uh, voting on it? Well, we would have, that would be the first session, so we'd have to pass it again next session, which would start uh, January of next year. So uh, depending on how quick it would move through the process, um, I've got to do the math here because there's advertising requirements, of course, to advertise it on a statewide basis. So you're probably looking at next year as being the earliest possible. Um, and that's only if you get it passed through both chambers again uh, prior to the advertising window that's required prior to the election. Um, you know, we were very fortunate, myself and Madeline Dean, who I've been working on with this bill, she's from Montgomery County, um, and we, we did get it out of the, the Judicial Committee with a bipartisan 1611 vote. It's the first time that it's actually had action uh, and been acted upon and moved in, I think, it's close to 25 years. And that's one of the questions I did have, uh, you know, that this is not... As I said in the introduction, this is not new. No, it's not. Uh, but it hasn't gotten a whole lot of traction in the past. What's different this time? Well, I think that, one, the scandals have brought in a heightened sense of awareness to the judiciary in general. And then, two, I think when you look at the most, uh, you know, the last election cycle, which has been unfortunately categorized as the most expensive judicial election in the history of the country, uh, where nearly $16 million was spent for three positions. And, you know, you look at that, it really starts to have people question, is that the best process? So there's a lot of interest. I, I also think social media has helped uh, because you have, you know, you have Facebook, you have blogs, you have, uh, you know, all those forums in which people can engage and discuss the issue. So I think that's helpful. But then we've also, as you pointed out in the open, uh, we now have six governors, five living, and, and the current governor who also support the process. And they, they span the spectrum in terms of political ideology because for me, and I, I, I don't want to speak for them, but based on their comments, I think this is true, uh, that the judicial selection process really should be above politics. And I think that this helps to get us there. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because uh, I want to go to Washington, sure. where right now we are in the midst of a huge controversy having to do with the appointment of a U.S. Supreme Court justice. Uh, Republicans have said to President Obama, uh, you know, hold off until after the election. The president says it's a part of his uh, constitutional uh, duties to uh, appoint a, a nominee for the Supreme Court. Uh we're talking about different situations, the way that it is handled. But the point I'm making is that the politics involved in it, even if what you are proposing becomes law, how do you get out of the politics? Well, I, I think that it's a fair observation to say that there will be some politics involved because the governor who makes the recommendation in the Senate by its very nature are political. Um, but the one difference with this proposal is that we would have the nomination committee uh, that pre-screens the applicants based on ability. And then, uh, in addition to that, if there is action, you know, we, we tried to put a, a very uh, very appropriate and yet deli- 
an opportunity to deliberate on the on each nomination. But if they are not voted in favor of, there's a process to go to the next one and then the next one and then have a tiebreaker. And you know, look, I, we can certainly discuss what that process is. We put a lot of thought into it in the committee. We think that's the best compromise to make sure that we don't have years of judicial vacancies, as we sometimes see on the federal bench. But uh, all of that, as part of being a constitutional amendment, all of that is open to discussion and amendments on the floor as well. Uh, Lynn Marks joins us. Lynn is the executive director of Pennsylvanians for Modern Courts. Uh, Lynn, you have been working on this issue for some time. And uh, I'll follow up with the conversation I was just having with uh, Representative Cutler about uh, the Washington situation, the U.S. Supreme Court situation, even though it is different. How do you keep the politics out of this, even if a judge is being selected, a nominee is being selected based on merit? Uh, well, good morning. Thanks for having me, and hello to uh, Representative Cutler, who's good been morning, a man. fabulous leader on this. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, there are there are politics in everything, and and you know there are politics in families. There are politics everywhere. So you got to compare it to the current elective process, which is pure politics, and 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 we we know that. I think it's so important. It. Is in this system, it gets rid of the money, which is a huge part. It gets rid of campaign contributions, which unfortunately usually come from lawyers and interest groups who would appear before the very judge that's elected. But you know, there's, there is so much focus on the federal system, and so I, I think it's important for um, for everybody to know that this is different from the federal system, which is why another reason why. Representative Cutler called it a hybrid appointing ele- elective system. It's it's not different just because it's only the three appellate courts and the local courts, common pleas and magisterial district judges would still be elected like they are now. But in the in the federal system is a pure appointment process. Basically the president can appoint anybody who he wants. I mean, sometimes there are commissions, and there are commissions here in Pennsylvania, but they're they're not required. The president is not required to pick from that from that list. Um, also, for federal appointments, those are lifetime appointments. Where under Representative Cutler's plan, uh, after a judge after confirmation sits for four years, four initial years. It then goes before the people in a yes/no retention vote. So it's the people that are going to decide whether that judge would stay on the bench for a full ten-year term. So it's really quite different from from a lifetime um, appointment. Um, but what's probably in, in terms of the talking about log jams and stuff, what's probably the biggest difference is, I mean, there there are no kind of blue slip blue slips like in Washington where you know a home state person can put a Senator can put the kibosh on, on on a candidate, but under this bill, there are timelines that are imposed, and there's a there are logjam mechanisms, um, so that we've learned from the federal system that there've got to be ways to get around the problems that they have now, where no one's being confirmed. So a lot of work has gone into this to distinguish it from the federal system and also to improve it from the current elective system. Well, you just brought up something else. I mean, we were talking about uh, the president uh, and uh, the Supreme Court nomination, but the federal courts is a little closer. Yes, it is different, but uh, you're right in that uh, uh, the Senate has to confirm.
affirm federal courts. And that has just been so full of politics in the last few years where uh, nominees are just sitting, waiting, not being confirmed, not based on you know, their qualifications or anything else, just that the president nominated this or, or you know, Republicans tried to make a, a case. Representative Cutler, if we're looking at some, you know, possibly, you know, a hybrid here where um, the, your colleagues would have to make some decisions on a, on appointing some of these people, maybe even confirming some of these people, what's to keep politics out of it again? I, I asked that question again because I'm just afraid that Harrisburg would become Washington. Well, it does have a mechanism if after uh, so many attempts at nominating somebody, then they would then select a default off of the list that was originally afforded to the governor. So I think that's an important distinction, as well as the timelines that Lynn mentioned, because it will keep things on track. Um, and the idea is by having five highly qualified individuals on the initial list, the governor can, can pick anyone that they want. Uh, there is some limit, if you will, in the selection process uh, from that side, but then there's the balance that it has to be confirmed by the Senate. And, uh, you know, the, I think the biggest uh, piece, as Lynn also pointed out, was the fact that no, no single one individual could stop a nomination because it's ultimately going to be a vote. And I think that's important as well. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly... Uh, and then the final piece, of course, is that by not having the millions of dollars in campaign donations, I think that that also helps remove this from the political process. Um, and uh, to be quite honest, uh, there's not that many positions, uh, unlike the federal system, which you know has hundreds of positions, that I think by its own very size bogs it down into the political process more often than it shouldn't. And look, I, I think at the end of the day, the voters expect us to work together and I, I do think, um, you know, if you look at this legislative cycle, despite uh, a lot of tension over the budget, we've still managed to work on over 100 different bills that the governor has signed into law. So there, there's, Harrisburg is not Washington. And I think that's an important distinction that is sometimes lost in the coverage of the issues as we go up, uh, you know, and we work on them in Harrisburg. And I do think that this can rise above partisan politics and keep the judicial branch accountable and then change the process to be more meritorious as opposed to political. Let me just you know, it says that um, the, the bill actually says, or be right into the Constitution, that if the Senate fails to act upon a nomination within a certain number of legislative days, the nominee will take office as if being consented by the Senate. And that's, they're just, they're, they're safeguards like that. That's just one of them written into the Constitution, um, to guard against, uh, log jams. But, you know, no, no system is going to be perfect. We know that. No system is going to get rid of all politics. I think the, the thing to really focus on is that merit selection, uh, focuses on qualifications and not being a good campaigner or fundraiser or having a good ballot or having a good ballot position. I mean, right now, the way we elect our statewide judges, the only qualifications are to be 21 
a lawyer and a resident for one year. I mean, that that's it. I mean, somebody can be right out of law school and has money or a familiar name and can win. So the idea is to get judges out of the campaign and fundraising business. Anybody who looked at that last election where there was well over $16 million spent by people who could appear before these judges and they saw the really negative ads and saw the, you know, the, the, the abysmal turnout, you know, people just don't know who to vote for and, and, and they don't want to guess. And so this is, this is a very well thought out process to get the, the most qualified judges and it widens the pool of candidates who will, who will put their names in. Um, I mean, so many people who are qualified won't even run for statewide judicial office because they figure if they can't raise the amount of money or have the political context, why bother? So I think we'd have many more people applying for these important positions. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. During this portion of the program, we're talking about a renewed push for merit selection of state appellate court judges in Pennsylvania. Our guest, Republican State Representative Brian Cutler of Lancaster County, and Lynn Marks, Executive Director of Pennsylvanians for Modern Courts. I wanted to follow up on what we were talking about uh, just a moment ago, and Lynn Marks, I'll address this to you. you were talking about money, and um, my, my question is, and I think most most voters, this is the biggest complaint you hear about electing uh, statewide judges, is that voters just don't know who they are, and under Pennsylvania law, uh, they can't campaign like a normal candidate anyway, so you have a lot of people saying, I'm honest, I'm tough, you know, uh, talking about their education, that kind of thing, and a lot of people end up uh, basing their vote on geography or what they've seen on television. But my, my question is, keeping money out of it, many of the contributions that come to judicial candidates come from law firms, come from lawyers, people who may someday be before those judges. Is this a perception problem, or do you know of cases where judges have been influenced by uh, their, the contributions to their campaigns? Well, I wouldn't. Um, that 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 is a concern about the current way that we elect our statewide judges. Remember, we're only talking about the statewide judges here for to change the the, the system. I think that the um, I would not poo poo the uh, perception issue. Um, all the polls show in Pennsylvania and nationwide that almost at nine out of ten. People believe that judges are influenced a little bit by campaign contributions, whether they are or not. And I, it's very, it's very hard to, to, very hard to prove that. What we're concerned about is that people need to feel like when they go to the court, when they go to a place for justice, that they're getting a fair shake. So I'm very concerned about that perception issue. And there have been studies done that people who live in states where judges are elected in partisan elections are much more cynical about the courts and outcomes and say that they're uh, that they the, the judges do care about campaign contributions and a lot of judges believe that as well according to polling so you know i'm not saying that that's how how cases are being are, are being decided at all i'm not saying that but unfortunately too many people believe that 
And and I wouldn't poo-poo the uh, the perception issue too, because uh, if that perception exists, you know it questions the integrity of the courts and it questions everything else uh, uh, when we're looking at there. Uh, okay, so Representative Cutler, where do we stand with this legislation right now? Well, uh, as I mentioned previously, it did come out of the House Judiciary Committee on a bipartisan vote, sixteen to eleven. And it's currently waiting consideration for the floor, uh, which would include the amendment process. Uh, so that's that's where we're currently at. Does it have bipartisan support? It does. It does. Madeline Dean's done a wonderful job of helping lead on, on this issue and help find Democratic support for it in the committee. Um, continuing to work with her. As a matter of fact, I'm meeting with her again Monday or Tuesday of next week. Uh, we're going to talk and compare notes in terms of, you know, people who had questions about the bill. Um, That's probably been the biggest part of this as we've moved forward is as we talk to individual members, uh, just understanding and describing and talking through the mechanics of the actual bill and what would actually happen under it. That has uh, been the the biggest issue, and we continue to work on that, uh, but we are making progress. Representative Cutler mentioned earlier, and I can't stress this enough, and that is only the people of Pennsylvania can change how we select our statewide judges. So the bill that is is currently awaiting action uh, in the House um, is for the legislators of both houses to pass a bill, two sessions, and then send to the and then send it to the people, so that you know we can decide for ourselves if there isn't a better way to change our to to choose our judges and you know get judges out of the campaign and and, and fundraising business as I, as I said before. So it's not like the legislature is going to do that. You know, it's only the people. So people would that, and the people would still have a hand a say in choosing your judges through the retention election after someone's been on the bench for four years. There are other states that use merit selection rather than electing judges. Uh, have you studied that, and what, have, uh, what experiences have they seen? Do you want me to take that? Either one. Do you want to do it? Go ahead, well, Lynn. I can, I, can, I can start it. Uh, Pennsylvania is one of only seven states that select all levels of our judges in partisan elections, which means judges run on a party line. They're running as a Democrat or a Republican. Um, so uh, 23, you know, 23 states and District of Columbia use some kind of a merit selection hybrid sec- uh, system to select at least some of their some of their judges. So we are clearly in a minority. I don't think it's a minority to be proud of, but as, as Representative Cutler said earlier, our last um, election in November hit not only a record amount of money spent for Supreme Court race in Pennsylvania, but even na- even na- nationwide. So, yeah, we are in contact with, with other states and um, um, and, and, and talk to them and, and the, the states that, that do um, appoint judges. Um, and as I said before, people are often less cynical and there's more confidence in the courts. I've got to say that we are not talking about the current judges. I mean, there are actually plenty of good judges in Pennsylvania who have gotten through this, this system, but we just think it's better to have a system which is actually designed to get the most qualified and get the money out of the process. You know, that brings up a good point. What about the judges who are already on the bench? Are they impacted by this at all? 
Well, this this bill, this if this constitutional amendment passes, it will only affect uh, vacancies as they come up uh, from current judges stepping down. So no one's going to get kicked out of there because there's a new way to select judges. So right now, uh, judges who uh, have a term and then come up for, uh, uh, what is it, a term on the, on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court? The retention Supreme- election. Right, for the retention election. What is a term on the Pennsylvania Supreme it's Court? 10 years. That's what I thought was 10 years. Yep. So uh, when, when that retention, so again, they're not impacted by this at all. They still would be, voters would still decide on uh, retention or not after 10 years. Correct. Okay. All right. One thing, and and either one of you can answer this question, um, and this kind of gets back to one of the objections over this in the past, is that it's kind of a philosophical thing that, uh, in a way, you're you're taking the vote out of people's hands. Now, I know both of you have said several times during the program that voters ultimately would have the decision, but voters would not be going to the ballot box— every so many years in voting for these judges. How do you respond to that when people say that, you know, somehow that uh, you're harming democracy here, that uh, you're taking a vote, taking a responsibility away from Pennsylvania voters? Well, I think the, the big point is this. We, one, we would still have the right to elect our own local judges. So when you get to the statewide judges, that process is typically dominated by the two-party system and the, their screening process through the state committees of each party. So this would change it, and in fact, I would argue that it improves it, because right now, under the current process, there, an election takes place, a judge is seated, and then 10 years from now, they are, they are voted to be retained or not retained. And to your point that you made earlier, they're not allowed to campaign like typical candidates, because it, it's a topic that might come up before them for a decision in the future, so they need to be very careful of how they answer their questions related to the judicial canon of ethics. And because of that, you get a lot of folks who will will say something, uh, they campaign in a certain manner, and their decisions may or may not back that up. But the problem is, after 10 years, uh, generally, by and large, you know, we've, we do not have a history of not retaining statewide judges, uh, whereas this process would really shorten or truncate that original term. So we would do the merit-based initial appointment, but then they would be up for that retention election in four years with a judicial record. So I, I think that, uh, you, w- you know, you wouldn't have a halo effect near the end of the 10-year term. It, you would take a good holistic look at all four years, and then I think that they would either be retained or, or removed based upon their actual decisions and, and what they have done. And I think that's an important part to have the electorate be engaged. But what you mentioned, Scott, in terms of philosophical, there is one big philosophical thing, actually not just philosophical, but uh, into the Constitution, and that is the role of judge is very different from the role of a governor or a legislator, you know, or a mayor or a president. You know, people in the legislative and, and executive branches make decisions based on what their constituents want and what popular opinion is, and we vote for them because we agree or don't, whether it's, you know, abortion or, or taxes or death penalty or whatever. But judges, on the other hand, are supposed to make impartial decisions based solely on the facts and the law, not according to what they said in the campaign trail and not according to what they personally think. So the role is really different. It's a, it's a nonpartisan job, and yet it's a very partisan process to be there. And so since the role is different, we think it makes sense to select them differently. 
want to thank uh, both of you for being with us today. Republican State Representative Brian Cutler of Lancaster County. Representative Cutler, I know you have to run. Lynn Marks, Executive Director of Pennsylvanians for Modern Courts. Thank both of you for being with us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for the opportunity to discuss it. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Pennsylvanians were shocked, saddened, and disgusted this week when Attorney General Kathleen Kane announced that an investigative grand jury had found that more than 50 Catholic priests and other religious leaders had sexually abused children, both boys and girls, over a 40-year period in the Altoona-Johnstown Diocese. Two bishops were accused of covering up the abuse. Kane said no one has been criminally charged, in part due to the statute of limitations. So how did this happen, and what can be done to make sure it doesn't happen again? Joining us, Angela Little, who is president and CEO of Pennsylvania Family Support Alliance. Ms. Little, welcome to the program. Thank you. All right. Yeah, no, you don't have to push that down. Okay, that talk back, I should have told you that. We don't, have to, we don't use that. So say thank you again. So just want to hear you. Thank you. All Good right, morning. there you go. See, she's very polite. She said thank you twice. And also joining us is uh, Democratic State Representative Mark Rossi of Berks County. Representative Rossi, thank you very much for joining us, too. Thank you for having me on this morning, Scott. Yeah, you're on the road right now, on your way to Altoona, I understand, so we don't have the best line, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll get through it. All right, so I want to ask both of you first. Uh, Angela, let me start with you. Your thoughts when you heard the announcement that the, the attorney general made this week about this case? Well, I think like anyone who would have read even just a few pages of the AG's report, absolute outrage. And my second reaction is, here we go again. We can't tell the good guys from the bad guys. So we obviously need to do things differently. You know, when you say that, that here we go again, uh, just last week, uh, this past weekend, we had the Academy Awards where the film Spotlight, uh, which is what the Boston Globe, the, the investigation they did into the Catholic Diocese in Boston. And that was in 2002. So here we are 14 years later. I have to admit, one of my first reactions was, you know, we've been focusing on this so much. How is this still happening? It's still happening because it's cloaked in secrecy. The Catholic Church was able to keep secret archives where they documented things in in very much detail, Um, one bishop a little more than the other. But the reality is um, it seems to be in almost each case out of the 50 priests identified and the hundreds and hundreds of children victimized, where it was really a a process of determining um, what was the risk and liability that the children or that the parents and family members who had come forward would in fact go public with this. Um, and then that, that it was all about protecting the institution far more than the victims. Let me turn to Representative Rossi first, because I have a follow-up question. Representative Rossi, what was your reaction? Oh, apparently we've lost him. We'll try to get him back on the line here in just a moment. Uh, but one thing I want to point out uh, when we say keep that it keeps happening, this is something that uh, in the investigation, the grand jury found that this happened over a 40-year period, but it was from the 1940s to the 1980s. So there have not been, or at least in this investigation, details of you know something that has happened recently, correct? To the, to the best of our knowledge. Right. But one of the things that the attorney, attorney general said is that they set up a hotline so that if there are other victims out there and maybe some who, uh, you know, have been victimized even recently in recent years, that they can call in. And I understand that they have gotten a, a lot of calls since then. So, uh, you know, I guess one of the big questions is, what do we do about it? 
Well, I think we do several things. Um, first of all, I think um, whoever is still alive is to the fullest extent of the law held accountable for what happened to those kids. I think there needs to be uh, not just legislative intervention, but absolute public outcry that the Catholic Church be held accountable to do business differently. It is no longer okay, despite how they have functioned for centuries, it is no longer okay to have unsupervised one-on-one contact with children. Those policies and, and things need to be changed. I think the second thing we need to do is acknowledge that, and philosophically for years I've been against this. You know, we we talk about stranger danger with our kids. We talk about, you know, uh, children learning how to protect themselves. Philosophically, there's been a piece of that to me that has never fit well. I've always believed that's too much responsibility for children, that in fact, we are called as adults to protect the children and to be accountable. Obviously, that's not working. So I would say that uh, parents really do need to have those tough conversations with their children. And it needs to go something like this. This is appropriate touch. This is inappropriate touch. And even if it is your teacher, even if it is the pastor, priest, rabbi, softball coach, Girl Scout leader, Boy Scout leader, and you need to begin to name for the children people in positions of power and influence that they would automatically assume just are good folks. And, and let's be honest, many of them are. But we can't risk this kind of stuff in our society. And then I think finally, um, we need to do as broad-based education for the average citizen as possible. We can no longer count on the mandated reporters solely and the institutions to do the right thing. And then I would say the final thing is, it's time, folks. We need to turn the statute of limitations, and it needs to change. And from what I understand, that is not something that you endorsed previously. Has this case changed your mind on that? I think it's the accumulation of it. You know, you just get tired of hearing it. It's, it's almost 30 years in this line of work for me. And I want to believe, I want to believe in the reformation of the human character, But I sat in the last 24 hours and read nearly every page of this 145-page grand jury report, and it is hard to have a lot of faith about the redemptive qualities of the human spirit when you read some of this. And so, you know, in the past, and I was on this show with um, our former board member and colleague, Jason Kudalakis, not too terribly long ago. He just passed away. Exactly. And and we talked about um, how difficult these cases are to prosecute. They're, They're hard to prosecute on the best circumstances. So I always looked at it and thought, you know, with with decades that have passed, you know, you look at the resources of this and and I've certainly talked with lots of colleagues this week. Um, I spent a lot of conversation with folks at the District Attorneys Association. And the reality is we I think have a responsibility to help these folks have closure whatever that is. And if, in fact, we keep in place the statute of limitations, it robs them of that one chance to have closure, at least through a judicial system. Let me get uh, Representative Rossi back on the phone. Representative, uh, we had yep. you on our program last year uh, talking about uh, your support of uh, changing the statute of limitations here in Pennsylvania. What does this case do 
to, I, I don't know, does it further that cause? I mean, are there people who maybe uh, did not support, the, the, uh, you know, changing the statute of limitations that now say yes, just like Angela? Yeah, I mean, no doubt about it. But first, I just want to say that the people who've been working on these cases, like myself, we're not outraged. We're not shocked. This has been a systematic approach by the Catholic Church, in not only in Pennsylvania, but across this nation. Um, and, and people are outraged now, saying, oh my God, this is going on. This has been going on for 50 years, people. And now they're, they're outraged. Um, the good thing is, I think this has finally put some of my colleagues and other people over the top where they're saying, okay, it, this is going to keep coming. And guess what? If we investigated every diocese in this state, you're going to find the exact same thing. And I believe in Pittsburgh, you might find even worse. So, um, you know, this will help move the statute of limitations reform along. There's no doubt victims need a two-year window here to be able to come forward. Um, and, and as far as I'm concerned, the, the DAs, they don't have to worry about prosecuting these cases because this is going to be a civil case. Uh, this isn't going to be a criminal trial. This will be a, a civil case uh, against the abuser or against the institution that protected you. And the important thing about the SOL and the removing the, uh, eliminating the criminal and civil moving forward as well is, we must expose these pedophiles and perpetrators. Because the thing we know, and I know from my own experience, children do not talk about this, okay? It took me until I was 39 years old to come forward and talk about it. So we can put all kinds of programs in place to protect children and give them all kinds of information, but guess what? If we don't exp expose the perpetrators, okay, and stop it on the front end, uh, these kids aren't going to come forward and talk about it till they're later in life, till they're alcoholics, till they're uh, drug addicts, till they have multiple personality disorders, and then the ultimate. And I just, I just lost my third one on Good Friday of this year. They commit suicide. So at some point, we've got to say, you know what, we're done. We've got to give these victims their voice, and the only way to do that is to open up a two-year window. All right, so before we get in, because I want you to tell your own story and why you are so passionate about this, but what does the statute of limitations say now, and what are you looking for? All right, well, the, the current statute of limitation right now is criminally is 50, and civilly is 30. That's when you have to be able to report by. A age, now, 50. People to, age 50. Age yeah, 50. Age 50 and age 30 civilly. But I want people to understand is that when I was 13 years old, okay, and I was sexually abused and raped by Father Graff, my statute of limitations were I only had five years to come forward criminally and two years civilly. Now, you tell me what 13-year-old knows what a statute of limitations is and what 13-year-old will come forward by age of 18. That's ridiculous. And what we're trying to do is eliminate the civil and criminal where there is no statute of limitations, where you can come forward at any time. But the most important piece of the legislation is the retroactive part where we open up a two-year window where anybody that was time-barred from the past can come forward, uh, expose the perpetrator, and have their voices heard in a civil court. Um, th that is like the absolute justice for victims. And not only that, but we're going to be identifying more pedophiles. So, um, you know, we want to point out uh, these evildoers and these people that are protecting them, these bishops. And, and believe me, it's not just in the Catholic Church. This goes uh, among all institutions, especially even in our own family and households. 
Um, but the thing that we need to do is open up the window. The victims have to have their voices heard. That's the only way we're going to get closure. That is the only way that the church is ever going to cleanse itself. I'm a Catholic, and I hope one day that I can go back to my church, but I won't go back until I know it's exactly how Jesus wanted it. He didn't, he didn't want these bishops um, taking control of it for their own uh, personal gains of, of sex. Um, we need to clean the church in its entirety. I'm going to turn to Angelo again for just a moment, but uh, you said something you say you suspect that there would be even more cases in the Allegheny Diocese, Allegheny County Diocese. Why do you say that? Because, um, Scott, because um, when I came forward and after I went out to the newspaper and they started writing my stories, I had 40 boys from my own parochial school come forward. And then I started getting letters from all over Pennsylvania and all over the United States. Um, I got letters from every diocese in Pennsylvania, and we, are, we need to investigate every diocese and find out the truth. If people are shocked now, just wait. Angela, first of all, your response to what you hear from Representative Rossi. Well, I'm, you know, I have a great respect for Representative Rossi. He served on the House Children and Youth Committee, um, have talked with him many times. I think he has a powerful story. Um, I'm pleased to see him using it for good. And I don't necessarily disagree. I think we have to keep it in perspective. And I think, you know, it, it's statistics, too. I mean, look at it. Where you have a larger population, you're more inclined to have, you know, a larger number of cases where where there are victims. I agree with him completely. This happens in our education system. This happens in daycare centers. This happens in homes. This happens in churches. It, it is not just the Catholic Church. But, you know, we have to remember the impact that uh, Sandusky had in Pennsylvania. And why? Because of the magnitude of it. And so while it was 14 years ago, I think many folks wanted to believe things got cleaned up. You know, like, let's say, how many times do we have to go around this um, and keep making the, the same mistakes? Mm-hmm. Very obviously, it's not been cleaned up. I want to go back to uh, one of your original uh, statements about what you'd like to see, that there would be no unsupervised. And I'm just kind of trying to get my head around this because I'm wondering how that logistically, how that would happen when you have altar boys. You have, mm-hmm. and, and again, not just in the church, but in so many other areas. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a challenge, but I think that folks are are now looking at things and and thank God for it. They're looking at things with a, a new lens. You know, you have I met with a guy yesterday who who teaches uh, karate, and you know he watches how he affirms the kids. You know, at the end of a match, he watches how he touches their shoulder or hugs them and he makes sure there's somebody around. Is that comfortable? Do we wish it to be like that? Of course not. And I don't particularly know all the logistics. I don't have all the suggestions for how the church should should handle that, because that is supposed to be, again, that is supposed to be a setting where there is the strictest of confidence, where there should be the greatest amount of security. My God, if you're not safe in a church, where are you safe? Well, see, I'm even thinking about a confession. Exactly. So, I think, I think I, the church should actually own up. The church should, you know, want to have justice for all victims. The church needs to own up, take accountability for its actions. That's what the church needs to do. And, and another thing is, um, we talked about Sandusky. And what came out of Sandusky? the task force. 
I can't be more disappointed. I mean, we did a lot of good things in that task force, but one thing that was definitely left out was the statute of limitations. And as I talked to members that sat on that task force, the thing that they told me is they were trying to urge Chairman um, uh, from Bucks, the um, from Bucks County yeah. Heckler to uh, look at the statute of limitations, and he denied them. And, and, and all they did was put a little paragraph in there that the statute of limitations were adequate. And now you have the Catholic Conference hanging their hat on the task force saying, the task force, you know, studied the statute of limitations very, you know, closely and did all this work for them. The task force did nothing. Let me repeat that. The Catholic Conference is going around saying the task force studied the statute of limitations, and the task force did nothing. Hey, Representative, let me interrupt you for just a moment, because I pulled out uh, you know, from a, a previous show where uh, we talked about this issue, and uh, I remember getting a response from uh, the Catholic Conference. But uh, one of the things that that task force, and this was the task force for child protection, uh, made its recommendations in November 2012. Uh, they took a close look at Pennsylvania statutes of limitations, recommended not be changed. They cited fairness as a major concern, especially the, the potential for staleness of evidence and possible constitutional concerns. It, the report states... The report states the task force believes that the current statute of limitations is adequate, given that Pennsylvania is one of the most generous states in terms of the length of time in which any action may be commenced. Right. A 435-page report and one paragraph. And that was only because some of the task force members that I spoke to have urged David Heckler to do something, and he didn't. And, and they talk about stale evidence. If you look at what just was released in Johnstown, 115,000 pages of documents, to me, that's not stale evidence. That's uh, evidence that is going to prove exactly what we've been saying all along, a systematic approach to child abuse and a systematic approach to covering up child abuse. Yeah, and let me and jump I, in I, with that, too, Representative. You know, the reality is out of that 115,000 pages of evidence, there's no way for it to go stale because the bottom line is it was their own words. It wasn't anyone else's words. It was their own words. But Okay, but there are some things in this that, that would make this a little more difficult in that uh, you have people who have passed away. You have mm -hmm. memories that have changed. As Representative Rossi said, that uh, we have people, you know, who were victims who suppressed those memories, didn't want to tell anyone, didn't until years later. So all those things are, I mean, people compare it to no statute of limitations for a murder. But this is a little bit different than that. It is a little bit different than that. But here's what I'm going to say about that. You know, we can be angry until the end of eternity about what the task force did or didn't do. I don't necessarily disagree with what the representative is saying today. But what I do believe is that we have an opportunity now. There are some good folks in the General Assembly. There are some good folks that will rally behind this. I think we can get something done with this. Um, and I think that there are lots of challenges, whether you're talking about a school, a church, an agency, a summer camp, whatever. There are challenges to kind of address now 
kind of the new day and the way we need to uh, look at the protection of kids. So quite frankly, I don't really care if it's an inconvenience. I don't really care if it goes against, you know, thousands of years of canon law. I don't really care if there has to be, you know, um, a a female, maybe someone, a nun, someone connected to the church, um, participate in activities that maybe in the past would have just been overseen by a priest. I don't really care about any of their challenges in doing that. I think what we learned again with Sandusky and what we have to keep saying is that the protection of kids absolutely must be first and forefront and supersede the convenience of the institutions and the professionals. We only have about four minutes left. And Angela, I want to get back to something you said very early on about those kind of honest conversations that we have to have with kids. You know, I always look at try to look at uh, both sides of, of an issue. That's not necessarily an issue. I mean, that is wise to do that anyway. But aren't you also scaring kids if you're saying that your teacher, police officer, priest, that you know, watch out for these people? You are. Let me tell you something. My oldest child will be 26. And the morning after the Columbine shooting, I was putting her on the school bus. Kids hear things. They see things. They talk about things. And my daughter looked at me and said, Mom, can you tell me if there's a shooter that comes in my classroom? Should I hide or should I try to help someone? She's my daughter. Guess what I said? Hide. So do I think it's hard? I think it's damn hard. And I think it's just a pity that we have to do it. But we are seeing time and time and time again that we cannot trust all the adults. We do not have the ability to choose and pick and see clearly the good guys from the bad guys, the good women from the bad women. And so what is the alternative? That's powerful. Representative Rossi, uh, what do you think about that? I mean, is there is that potential for frightening uh, children, but it sounds like it's something that has to be done. Absolutely. We need to educate, and that definitely promotes. Um, but, you know, the thing about this Josh thing that just has me so disturbed, though, is, is that, you know, not only all these kids were abused, but when you have the bishops and monsignors of these towns selecting the police chief, the mayors, and then you have these victims going to the police, and then police not helping them, and then the police referring to the diocese, we have a problem, and we need to investigate it. Mm. Uh, we only have about 90 seconds left. And one thing I did, we got an email here from Thomas in Lancaster, and I know there are people who feel this way. And he says, I th- say that this is open season on the church. Representative Rossi? So I'm a Catholic. And I would love to go back to my church one day, but not until I know they have cleaned house. I mean, it is still going on. It's still going on in Pennsylvania. And and guess what? Now that we're chasing them out, the Catholic Church is moving them to third world countries where they're abusing those kids. We have to stop this. This is our faith. Don't you want your faith to be what it's supposed to be? Stand up and be a, be a proud Catholic. But that also means doing the right thing. And that's what I was taught in parochial school. And let me add in on that, too. You know, I am not a Catholic. I have spent some time in seminary, and I spent years working for a, a church. What I will say is I don't think it's open season by any means on the Catholic Church, though I'm sure it feels like that. I think it's open season on anyone who's not protecting kids and doing the right thing by them. 
Mm. Yep. Uh, Boy Scouts, Bill Cosby, you name it, yep. it's happening. Yep, and that's unfortunate. Angela Littles, president and CEO of the Pennsylvania Family Support Alliance, uh, State Representative Mark Rossi of Berks County, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. And uh, I, there's, I understand that there is even some news coming out uh, this weekend from the diocese. So uh, be sure to tune in to WITF and uh, to get the latest on uh, that big news story coming up as well. Uh, have a good weekend. I will talk to you Monday morning.